Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you happen to be. Apologies, I froze up a little bit there. Welcome to the Monday edition of 7investing now. My name of course is Daniel Brooks Klein. I am being joined today by Simon Erickson and Dana Abramovitz. We let's just hit the ground running here because we have a very busy show. We ask people online what industry they expect uh, is going to be disrupted. And the vast majority of people said healthcare. Simon Erickson even weighed in on our Twitter uh, with healthcare. If you want to bring that up, Sam Bailey, we would appreciate it. So, and we'd also, a little thank you to Genghis on. We're not going to get to those companies, but he seconded Simon's vote. And there were like 70 or 80 votes for healthcare. It was really exciting. So let's, uh, let's get to this right off the top. I'd love for you to explain, Simon, why you picked healthcare. And then, of course, we'll get to Dana, who can start to spell all of this out. And as always, we would love your questions and comments. Uh, well, first of all, Dan, I'm really looking forward to this show because I think it's combining one of Dana's, Dana's favorite topics to talk about with one of my favorite topics to talk about in the same show altogether. Uh, but just to set the table a little bit, disruption is all over the financial media these days. But all innovation is not disruptive innovation. And so disruption is kind of this category where you have a, a very large percentage of consumers in an industry, perhaps even the majority of consumers, that are underserved or underrepresented by the majority or the incumbent's products, right? So when we think about this kind of computing started with NASA getting these giant IBM mainframes that were just available for large government funded missions. Now, of course, we've got personal computers, laptops, and smartphones as the computing industry disrupted itself. And this is kind of healthcare is the textbook definition of an industry that's ripe for disruption out there. We've got $4 trillion we're spending in America alone on healthcare. And for the most part, medical bills are paid for or reimbursed by insurance companies. And the burden of insurance premiums is paid by either private employers who are taking care of their full-time employees or government-sponsored programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And by the way, each of those is now ringing up an almost $1 trillion annual tab. So they're very, very expensive. And the entire system of reimbursement is also based upon the physician fee schedule, right? We're paying for procedures. We're, re we're reimbursing based on volumes for tests rather than necessarily the medical outcomes for the patients themselves. I know that Dana has a lot of opinions about that. We'll get into it later on the show. But the whole, the whole point is this is an industry that as a whole has kind of rewarded, you know, expensive health care plans, people that can have access to the greatest doctors and the greatest health care out there. But we've got an underserved group of Americans, and I'm sure the rest of the world has this as well, too, uh, that, that really need a disruptive opportunity or that, that will cater to their needs and make sure that we get good health care for everybody out there. So that's why I voted for health care in this poll. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that disruption is difficult. You're taking on incumbents. You're taking on a huge operating system. Dana, we're going to talk about innovation. But first, I wanted you to comment a little bit on, uh, on what Simon just said. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole... Healthcare industry is um, adverse to risk, right? You know, it's, it's in their their DNA, right? The Hippocratic Oath: Do no harm, right? And so, you know, they have a centuries-long tradition of, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, I mean, like the stethoscope, you know, it's this the same thing that you know to listen to your heart. It's the same thing that people have been using forever, right? Um, 
it, you know, it could have been improved probably, but you know, there's no initiative, right? There's, there's no, none of that disruption, but then, you know, I, I think that, you know, the pandemic has really, you know, pointed out um, the opportunity and, and people who are not getting access to healthcare um, and just where we can really um, create disruption um, just so that people have more access to it. We're only as healthy as the guy making our burrito. That's something we've learned during the pandemic. Simon, before we get to Dana on sort of why innovation is difficult in healthcare, I wanted to get to the comment from Max Lucas, if you could read it, because uh, your vision is better than mine, as we pointed out. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So Max says, uh, thanks again for watching, Max. He says, I, I know people think technology can disrupt any industry because how well it disrupted consumer goods. But industries like healthcare and real estate are hard to disrupt due to regulatory hurdles. Dana, how convenient. You just wrote a report on can technology fix healthcare? Yes. Uh, uh, yes, I did. Um, and you know, it's, it's, so technology can um, help healthcare, but it can't be a band-aid. So if you have a technology company that, you know, like it, it's it's very easy to see, you know, as as consumers of healthcare, we can see where the bro the system's broken. You know, every time I go to the doctor and, you know, the nurse measures my blood pressure, my temperature, writes it down on a post-it note and then turns to enter it into the computer. Right. I mean, like those are opportunities to mess up. Right. And, you know, like, you know, why can't it just, you know, conveniently go into an EHR? Um, yeah. So, you know, there, but it has to be within the system. And then, you know, like the regulatory hurdles, certainly. I mean, like that's, you know, the one of the biggest problems that the healthcare industry faces is that, um, you know, there are all sorts of different government regulations and that the, it's at the federal and the state level, um, as well as, you know, a lot of the, you know, Simon had talked about, you know, insurance and who's paying for things, you know, that also comes from government. And, you know, if there's an opportunity for it to change every four years, then, you know, or, you know, two to four years, it, it could. So it just makes it really hard for the industry to respond to all of these regular regulatory changes, which makes it, you know, difficult to, to make change in the first place. It's also worth noting that this is a very large industry and an enormous amount of training goes into obviously being a doctor, a nurse, a healthcare provider. And that tends to make you set in your ways. Like I know Simon, if there was a new way to look at stocks, we might be resistant uh, you know, to some of that logic. But I wanna share a comment from James Bixler that, that just sort of made us all laugh and let Dana talk a little bit about <laughs> why innovation is slow. Uh, and here, Jason Bixler, I apologize. And he says, healthcare, they still use fax machines for crying out loud. Uh, even I don't have a fax machine anymore. Dana, I know you wanted to tell a story. Yeah, no, so I had a story. So, you know, I, I've been working in the healthcare industry my entire career. Um, it's like 30 years now. Um, and I was you know, talking to a um, head of oncology at a community hospital in Silicon Valley. So, you know, a fairly innovative um, hospital. And, you know, I asked, um, you know, she said, if you want to, you know, change healthcare, you know, spend a day in the clinic. And so I did with her and I, I followed her and I watched her sign out a patient, right? So, you know, a patient's in the hospital, the doctor has to, you know, sign, you know, sign that person out. So saying that they, you know, are okay to leave. Um, and she had a pen and a piece of paper and she signed, like literally signed out. It wasn't, using an EHR, 
right, an electronic health record. It wasn't, you know, using any digital means. She actually had a pen. And just seeing that, you know, here is this innovative organization that's still doing things, you know, like paper charts. Um, you know, it's, it's we, we have a ways to go. We're going to take Luciana's comment in a second. But Simon, this is actually in healthcare, right? Like they, they built this industry to make it, I don't want to say not disruptable, but slowly disruptable. That's absolutely right. Health, healthcare as a whole has purposely put hurdles in place to slow the pace of innovation, right? Like think, think fundamentally about what healthcare is. Think about how many years it takes to become a doctor. You are an expert in your craft. And if all of a sudden the industry starts changing at a whim and everything that you've learned goes out the window, it would be impossible, right? You've got standard of care that is meant to be in place so that doctors can know what to do and how to diagnose and how to treat patients. If that's changing all of the time really quickly, it's going to be very difficult for doctors to keep up. Think about medicines. Think about the, you know how, how long it takes to get a new drug approved and go through FDA trials. You know It costs a billion dollars and 10 years to get anything commercialized. That's on purpose because you want to reward the companies that have spent the time and done the rigorous research to actually have two years of exclusive patent protection so that they can actually recognize the fruits of their labor from all the work they did out there. And just, I mean, healthcare as a whole, I think that the regulations are, are very good. I mean, there's health for, for good reasons is, is people's lives that are at stake here. You don't want this to be moving as quickly as cloud computing or the internet happens. But again, we see a lot of fundamental problems um, and I think that there are definitely some some big corrections that need to play, take place. Again, when you're talking about a sixth of our GDP and four trillion dollars a year, there's a lot of efficiencies we can realize out there. Yeah, it's also steering a cruise ship. These are not easy changes to make. And I'll give an example from our lifetime. It wasn't that long ago that the vast majority of prescriptions were written on a piece of paper and you brought them to your pharmacist to fill it. Now, much more common to have that be done electronically. It's not 100%. There's still a lot of paper prescriptions and pharmacies that, that aren't hooked up electronically. Or I go to one CVS and they sent my prescription to another CVS and it's there's no interoperability there. So this can be really, really tricky. We would love your questions and comments. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show about some of the other areas uh, you thought were ripe for disruption. But I want to start with Simon on this one. How do you sort of separate what's industry stubbornness and people protecting their own piece of the pie and what's actually something where we should go really slowly to not sort of upset the apple cart of, you know, a system that sort of works where we're not all dead. It's a good question of, of what needs to be innovated the most, right? And if you look at these pockets of healthcare, which, which by the way, when we say healthcare, it's like 1000 different sub segments, right? Or whatever <laughs> we're talking about within this giant industry out there. But two that are, I, th I think, necessary are oncology and, and prescription drugs. Oncology is we're spending more than $110 billion a year on the fight against cancer. And it's very expensive. And a lot of the times we're just reactively responding to patients that are in later stages of cancer, right? Stage two, stage three, maybe even stage four, cancer. And what if we could proactively detect that earlier on? What if we could solve these problems that are hardwired into us as human beings through this blueprint we have called DNA? to stop those problems from happening rather than reactively responding to them. I mean, that's one huge area that could be could be fixed. And the other one is, is prescription drugs. I mean, Medicare Part D, right? How much are we spending on treating chronic conditions with drugs over decades uh, rather than correcting the fundamental problems? And, and we have opportunities to correct both of those now. Both of these big things have got technological innovations, whether it be gene editing, 
whether it be gene therapy, whether it be RNA interference, you know, a lot of the work that even Dana did in her PhD work. Uh, the technology is out there and can be applied. But to your point about the narrative, Dan, this is a controversial field. When you say gene editing, there's a lot of kind of controversy that, that people, whether it's ethical, whether it's, you know, resistance to this for different reasons, um, whether it's privacy debates, people don't want to share their DNA or their healthcare records out there. When we talk about the pace of, of innovation, you've got to have buy-in from the consumers that are underserved. And a lot of those questions still remain to be answered. And not every solution is a pill. And I think that's important to remember. And it's something I've talked about with Dana and Max Lott. And I'm going a little off script here, but I'm going to throw it to Dana. I can get back interoperability. But I know that I went to the doctor and my blood pressure was edgy. It was sort of right at the edge of, of where you want it to be. And the prescription was walk more. Dana, your thoughts here on sort of non-medical treatments. Apologies if I, if I jumped up for a second there. I'm in Las Vegas for all of you who, who don't know. And the internet connection is designed to send you to the casino. It is clearly not designed for broadcasting. Dana, your thoughts on, on sort of like our, our quickness to treat a pill, to, to give people a pill and to not say, hey, if you made these lifestyle changes, and I've made a lot of them, much less red meat, much more walking. You know, Simon has, has sort of dared me to be here for the next 50 years. I'm trying to do that. Uh, Dana, that's fighting against sort of an establishment, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. There's there was a cartoon that I saw, um, you know, and it's you know all these people waiting in line for that you know quick fix, right? And so we as a society, you know, have been kind of um, taught, you know, like how how do you get that that immediate result? And you know, a lot of times, you know, like taking a pill, you know. Eat, even if you're watching a late night commercial and you know there's a, an ad for a supplement that's just going to melt fast fat away in minutes right and you think oh that that sounds great sure it's you know 10.99 you know for 3 months um, in order to get that one month of dosage but you know like i'm going to do that because that's easier taking that pill is easier than changing my diet, changing my lifestyle, you know, exercising a little bit more, you know, meditating, sleeping more, you know, just all the things that we know can improve your wellness. And, you know, Simon had said earlier, you know, about, you know, moving towards prevention, right? So, you know, like moving more upstream such that, you know, we're not getting sick, such that we're identifying illness early before it becomes expensive and difficult to treat. You know, so if we can kind of move to that point, um, I think that's, you know, we'll, you know, like that in, in and of itself is disruption, but that is disrupting us as a society and not necessarily the industry, you know, or getting the industry to kind of help us as a society. But we got to work together on that one. It's taking the long term investing approach to healthcare rather than the day trading approach. And Simon, this might be a good time for you to talk a little bit about our long-term approach at Seven Investing and how people might become a member. And then of course, we will get right back to talking disruption in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that analogy. The long-term investing approach to healthcare is you know, changing uh, things for the good of the outcomes. Uh, first and foremost, if you go to our website, seveninvesting.com, you can get free access to Dana's report on whether or not technology can fix American healthcare. I think it's fantastic. Dana, like she said, has been spent three decades in the healthcare industry, consulting with CEOs. And she also has a PhD in biochemistry, so she's very knowledgeable about this subject. And we're offering her report for free on 7investing.com right now. It's only going to be available for the next week. 
So I, reckon, I recommend anyone who's not already a subscriber to check it out for free. Uh, if you are a subscriber to 7investing, you'll get it uh, as long as you'd like this. We're posting it to the research tab of our website. And so please continue to check it out there. But to answer your question, Dan, uh, you can sign up at 7investing.com slash subscribe. Not only do you get access to great premium content like the reports on healthcare, but also our team's seven best ideas in the stock market each and every month. I'm pretty excited. We just locked in our picks for next month, Dan. Uh, we've got, again, a really nice slate of options, some of them being companies that a lot of us had never even heard of before. So it's very exciting. There's all three or four I've never heard of. $49 a month or $399 a year, sevinvesting.com slash subscribe. We'd love to have you as a member. We have our new member call, our members only call all this Friday. That is the best day of the month. It's a busy day. It's a, it's a multiple coffee type of day. It, it is a, it is a, uh, a marathon, but it is a ton of fun because we get to interact with our members. We get to talk about things we don't talk about on this show. We would love more of your questions and comments. Luciana, I promise we will get to yours before the show is over. Dana, I wanna talk about interoperability. You mentioned this word. Why don't you explain what it means and sort of how it can be disruptive in the healthcare space? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned electronic health records um, multiple times in this call. Um, so just, you know, basically data and who has it, right? So if you go to, you know, for one doctor, um, you know, say your primary care physician, and you have all your blood work and all of your data is in that um, physician system. And then say you have a um, endocrinologist that you're working with. Um, all of your, you know, you go and you have different tests and all that now is in that doctor's system, right? That doc, that the, your data does not talk amongst the different doctors, even if they're in the same network you know, that they may not have that. So that that is the interoperability of, you know, sharing data, healthcare data. My, my car gets better service because I've always taken my car to the dealership. So when I was living in California, it was there. Now that I'm in Texas, it's here. And the, my dealership here knows exactly, you know, how my car has been treated um, throughout its entire lifetime. That doesn't happen in the healthcare system. Um, which is really unfortunate, right? And a lot of it, you know, is, is who owns the data, right? Is it your physician, you know, because, you know, or is it the patient? And a lot of times the physicians don't want the patient to own it because then they can go to different physicians, right? But, you know, it ultimately is the patient's data. So there's a lot of discussion on, um, you know, who owns the data, the interoperability, um, you know, as a um, as a patient, you know, you have your right to your data. So if um, your physician isn't, you know, complying and giving you results, you can tell them that they should. Um, I'm a big advocate for making sure that that patients have their their own data. And of course, there's a technology aspect of that because we have to move our data around privately. I don't care if somebody knows that my car needed an oil change. There might be health issues that you don't necessarily want to be public shared. Uh, Simon, you think we should actually change how some of healthcare is incentivized. Do you want to explain that one? Because I found it really interesting. It's a really interesting one for sure, Dan. Uh, Dana talks a lot about value-based care. And we've, we just kind of discussed already the physician fee schedule and how we're rewarding for reimbursements for procedures rather than outcomes. Uh, if you want to change the system, you kind of start with what you define success as, right? Right now, success is you completed a test. We're going to reimburse you for the test. Let's move on. And doctors are saying, hey, we're going to cover ourselves. We don't want a malpractice suit on us out there. So let's run as many tests as it takes to show that we did what we we're supposed to do. 
What if you can move that proactively to say, hey, really what's most important to me is making sure that this patient is okay and the medical outcomes are the very, very most important things. And so that's why we've seen the CMS kind of pushing for value-based care, value-based care, right? And insurers have picked up on this. United Healthcare, largest insurer in America, has said, yes, we want to transition where we're rewarding the outcomes and we want to keep people healthy. Uh, a gentleman I, I have chatted with for several years named Donald Brown, he used to be CEO of a publicly traded company called Interactive Intelligence, now is running a new, running a new company called Life Omic, uh, which is trying to encourage exactly what Dana mentioned earlier in the program, keep people healthy. 50% of health is just your, are you staying physical? Are you, are you taking care of yourself? What are the activities that you're doing? But it's really, really challenging to change lifestyles for people. And even he who started a company to try to encourage some of these behaviors has said to me, hey, this is a really, really challenging problem. It's very personal. You can tell people to eat healthy and go jogging every morning, but it's still up to them to do that. Now, the interesting part is going to be if you start rewarding financially, uh, the people who are insured, if you give them rewards for staying healthy, for doing things that they want to nudge you to live a healthier lifestyle, I think that's one thing that might change the equation a little bit when it comes to the insurers and the payers of this. So, Dana, one of the things I do is I share my, my Fitbit or Apple or whatever happened to be wearing data with my trainer, and he sort of makes suggestions and tells me things to do. Are there ways we can sort of incorporate health and that type of monitoring uh, in, you know, in a non uh, you know, privacy violating way with our healthcare providers where maybe I actually pay lower rates because I have lost 20 pounds and I do walk 10,000 steps a day and, and you know, all things I'm doing, not so I look better, but so I actually live longer. Like that's my goal. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have wearables and um, there are, you know, an insur insurance um, programs where, you know, they'll give you uh, your insurance company or your company will give you a, you know, um, health fitness tracking device, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, incentivize you to, you know, do different activities. Um, there are also um, different wearables that will share um, reports to your physician so that, you know, you're collecting um, data, you know, and, and that's not just your steps and your physical activity, but now there are wearables that can monitor um, blood pressure, heart rates, um, you know, like a whole suite of, um, of bio, you know, life biomarkers that you can share with your physician to help, um, you know, track your, your health. And, you know, like you know, we did talk, you know, with the data and the interoperability, um, there is, you know, the, the data protection, right? So there's, you know, HIPAA laws, which um, is the um, portability of data, right? And, and um, you know, there is a privacy component of that, right? So you can share data, but you can't, your personal um, medical information um, has to be separate, right? So, you know, a, 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 an anonymized heart rate um, or blood pressure doesn't necessarily mean anything, but you know that it belongs to me and where I live and what my phone number is, and you know that you know obviously that's um, more personal. And so that's that's the the PMI that you might hear um, when people are talking about the law complaints. And, and if I might add to that too, Dan, it, it, we have seen as investors a lot of flops when it comes to consumer-facing healthcare, especially for medical devices. If Fitbit was not a good investment, right? 23andMe kind of got exposed that it wasn't medically actionable, right? Under Armour tried to do Map My Fitness and have you know devices you put on. That was a big flop and a waste of money for them. We've seen a lot of failures in this because it was always just kind of this this fun, you know, need to have data that was you could go out and you could track how many steps you were doing every day or what your heart rate rate is, 
but it wasn't something that was really tied into your doctor that was being reimbursed by the insurers. And I think that the necessary step to kind of make this more personal, make this more tied in with your insurer, with your employer, I, I'm starting to see those happen where we didn't see those maybe five, seven years ago when a lot of these companies were trying to front, where the, front run where this industry should have been heading. And it has to get better. Uh, Dan, I'll go to you in a second. My Fitbit needs to know that I'm walking, not moving my arm a lot during a show, which it doesn't know. So like that is absolutely an issue. Dana, I stepped on you there. My apologies. No, Go ahead. It's, it's, it's fine. Um, you know, so you know, a lot of times with these devices, and this is the problem, is that you know it's a shiny object. You know, it's new, and so you want to use it, but then after a while, you stop using it, and it ends up in your drawer, right? So it, you know, and and this is why you know a lot of these businesses you know, weren't great investments because they were, you know, great and new at the beginning, but not great for the long term because people weren't using it for the long term because, you know, there wasn't that long term lifestyle changing. So, you know, back to Dan's comment on, you know, like, how do we get healthcare to be more of a long term investment rather than, you know, just a day trade or, you know, just like a short term, you know, a couple of weeks until we get bored and, you know, something else new pops up and we want to try that. Yeah, and walking 10,000 steps a day is better than walking 200,000 steps once a month. Like, there's a lot of benefit to that. I want to take a comment from Bill Clock because it, it speaks to something Simon wants to talk about. We don't need to talk about the specific companies, but he says screening companies seem to be the most disruptive. Simon, you wanted to talk about how identifying things really early on, you've alluded to it earlier, uh, but this could be, I don't want to say the holy grail, but a major part, if we catch cancer, on day one instead of day 200, that makes it easier to treat. Yeah, sure. And so that speaks exactly to one of them that Bill brought up here, right? EXAS is Exact Sciences, which is doing an at-home diagnostic for colorectal cancer. I mean, that, that's something that's a lot different than having to go into the hospital, wait for results. You know, so you can basically just send by mail uh, a diagnostic test like that. Nano X, you know, same thing, trying to trying to do things that are more disruptive to the system right now. The system itself wants to move slowly. You've got to show progress. We still need to look at the right metrics as investors to show that these companies are executing well, but I think that they're heading in the right direction. I mean, if we really are going to have consumer-facing healthcare, let's have consumer-facing companies who are innovating in that field. Could we disrupt the basket? Some had to go through this a couple of times. This feels like one that is right. going to be public demand, a better, easier way to do this. I'm being silly a little bit because obviously that's a fairly invasive procedure. But there's a lot of room with a lot of these to do blood-based testing, to do other genetic marker testing, things where we could figure it out beforehand. We appreciate your questions and comments. Dana, feel free to jump in. I, I, I can comment on that, right? So, you know, th there's, um, you know, a lot of the regulations, you know, so you have that basic gold standard, right? So a colonoscopy. Um, if you have a screening test that um, can you know, and the company shows that it can provide that same level of standard as a colonoscopy that can be become adopted, right? And and you know, we are doing that a little bit. You know, with with some tests, you know, you get screened, and then um, you know, like if you get a negative result or you know, like a questionable result, then maybe you come in and have the you know more invasive test. But you know, we, we are actually getting to that point. I'm, you know, thankful for that as I'm getting up in age. So yeah. well, and, and diagnostics data, like you said, it's all about selectivity and sensitivity, right? You, you don't want to have false negatives, nor do you want to have false positives. 
where a false yeah. negative is saying, uh, you know, hey, we, we missed it. You know, you don't, you're fine. There's nothing there when there really is or a false positive where they identify something that really is not a concern. Obviously, both of those are really bad if you have the wrong diagnostics. So it's super important, even if it's cheaper to keep the same standard. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of that with COVID testing where, you know, false negatives gets people locked in their hotel rooms until a, you know, a better test comes out. I want to talk about one of the disruptors we're already aware of, and that's telemedicine. And, and Simon, you can take this first. Has tele telemedicine already proven to be a disruptor? I think parts of it are, Dan. In terms of uh, somebody who really nerds out on disruptive innovation. I, I would not consider this to be by the by the book disruptive, at least for 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 uh, telemedicine. It, it is great. I, we want to move people to their homes and, and just have the uh, the calls with their doctors take place at home rather than having to go to the to the hospital. Uh, the downstream of that too of, of pharmacies is very important too. I know that Dana chatted a couple of weeks ago for our podcast with someone who is delivering uh, prescriptions directly to people's homes. Uh, all this is very innovative. The disruptive part to me, though, is actually in the wearable devices themselves, who can collect data points and send that to your doctor so that you can proactively diagnose things and say, hey, red light, something's out of whack here. Let's come in for an appointment or do a telemedicine appointment. Uh, rather than retroactively saying, hey, I don't feel good, I come in and then you diagnose the symptoms. Uh, so I think that's kind of connected to telemedicine, but it's in a in really more of the wearable segment of that, at least in my opinion, is is, dis is the disruptive part of it. Dana, your thoughts here? Yeah, so I think for me, the disruptive part is um, the convenience to patients, right? So uh, getting the healthcare industry to treat patients as consumers, right? And I think that that's what telemedicine does. Um, it, it you know gives people access to a doctor conveniently when they need it. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, if you're sick, sometimes you call your doctor and they can't get you in right away. But, you know, you call, you know, book an appointment um, on Teladoc and then you get notice, you know, like, hey, a doctor is going to call you in 10 minutes, make sure you're ready. Right. And so, you know, like that convenience. And so disrupting the healthcare industry in a way such that it's more like we expect you know, other retail um, or other, you know, types of industries that we interact with and that convenience that we get from it. So it, it's, you know, that's just a different way to, to look at the disruption, I think. And telemedicine a lot of times solves a problem where you already knew the answer. My son had allergies. He needed eye drops. Telemedicine made a lot more sense than going to a minute clinic. Uh, I want to take two comments, one from Daniel Delgado, one from Luciano. Simon, I'll let you uh, read those and sort of lead the discussion there. Sure. Yeah, Sam, you can put one of those up and I'll read whatever you put on the screen. Okay. Yeah. Daniel, uh, fellow Houstonian. Thanks for watching the program. Apple Watch tracks a lot of health information for individuals, especially when walking. Uh, they are so much at my fingertips. I use the info to achieve my health goals. I do show my doctor, my Apple Watch health activities and my tracking results. Great info to share. Dana, that sounds like A plus from Dana. That's what you're trying to achieve out there, right? Yes. Yeah, no, I, I have an Apple Watch. I love it. And yeah, I mean, like, you know, using it um, and, and having that reminder, you know, sharing that information with your doctor. And then, you know, it really just becomes a lifestyle thing, right? I mean, the nice thing about these smartwatches um, and, and, you know, how Fitbit has expanded um, is that, you know, it's not just, you know, tracking steps. It's not just a pedometer, but it incorporates other things so that you might be more apt to wear it. And then if you're more apt to wear it, 
then you, you know, you have this reminder on your wrist or wherever it is um, that, you know, like, oh yeah, maybe I should walk, you know, take the stairs instead of the elevator or park my car a little bit further away or, you know, just, just a, be a little bit more active. And, you know, the, the Apple watch, ha you know, has little reminders to like stand up every so often, or, you know, to breathe, if you get a little bit stressed, it can sense all of those things. And, you know, those, those are good things to promote that, that whole wellness, um, well-being. My Fitbit is nearly as much my boss as Simon is. I, <laughs> I, I often have to walk around the room because of the Fitbit. Uh, let's have you trained with uh, my voice yet, Dan? Does it does it talk to you in my voice when it's telling you to do things yet? <laughs> it, it it doesn't talk. Um, okay. And I've bought all of the devices, and I've struggled with what the right one is. So if anyone on the team wants to try a device, I have more than a few I could send around. <laughs> Why don't we take uh, EB Capital's comment, which is of course our friend Todd. Oh yeah, Todd, uh, Simon, if you want to read that. Yeah, the, the best, what's the best wearable innovation? Maybe automated insulin devices. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, with pumps replacing some of the existing stands out there. Any thoughts on that one, Dana? That might be a Oh, yeah, so so my boyfriend has type 1 diabetes, so I, I am up close and personal with the CGM nowadays. Um, and so, so yes, you know, I, I have um, friends who, you know, have been dealing with diabetes for their lifetime and, you know, it, it certainly helps. Um, you know, is it 100%? You know, like there's still, you know, calibration that you have to do. You know, there are still times when, you know, sugar's high, sugar's too low. Um, it's it's definitely, you know, uh, so I, I, I don't use one personally, but, you know, um, my boyfriend does. And, you know, from his experience, um, yes and no in terms of good. But, you know, like certainly giving freedom um, for parents um, of children with type one diabetes, absolutely. Um, you know, just the the uh, the fear of you know a child um, you know having a low and you know going into a diabetic coma. I mean, like you know, uh, these for real are, are serious things. And you know, I, I've heard stories of parents. Um, you know, sleeping in their child's room because they're not sure that they're going to wake up um, just because of their blood sugar. So um, absolutely, um, that has, you know, helped. And, and that's a chronic disease that, you know, people have been, you know, living with for generations. And um, I'm happy to support, you know, those organizations that are, are working um, on the research and, and helping to make that better. Dana, are we on the cusp of more meaningful health monitoring, like for everything from blood pressure to, you know, to insulin levels to whatever else you might need to track on a regular basis in a meaningful medical way? Um, yeah, yes and no. You know, I mean, I, I think that there are, um, you know, so with CGMs, and we've talked about this before, you know, if, if if it's a medical device, right, it needs to be treated and regulated as a medical device and make sure that you have the testing um, to know that it, you know, is is meeting your gold standard, um, especially if people's lives depend on it. Um, you know, I think that, you know, like for my Apple Watch, if my heart rate, you know, is a little bit off, um, you know, for the most part, it's not going to matter. But, you know, like if I have an, arith an arrhythmia, um, then, you know, like that, you know, and, and it's sending um, warnings to my doctor, then, you 
if it's off, then that could be a bad thing. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're, we're getting better, but, you know, a lot of the commercial, um, you know, uh, recreational trackers, um, it's a fine line between, you know, being a medical device and, you know, just being for fun. Dana, can the anecdotal information be useful? I track my heart rate too, and I prefer the Fitbit, which gives me a daily average rather than the sort of real-time data. That can be valuable, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and there have been studies that have, you know, talked about, um, you know, like having, you know, like heart rates, um, uh, your blood pressure, just having all of that information and, you know, tracking it and, and how that, you know, provides that overall view of your health um, and, you know, going back to the, the prevention, right? So, you know, it, uh, long, longitudinally, I'm not sure right? so that long-term investment, a, a change, and that change. Hmm? I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, yeah, and if, I if that like you cut off for a minute. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, no, if, if that, you know, if you're tracking over time and that change adjusts, then that could be an indication that something's, something's different and, you know, you should look into. So, um, you know, I, I do think it's a good thing. Yeah. And Dan, if I can add to that too, I mean, just think about what we said, 50% of health is lifestyle, right? And who's collecting more data about you than anyone than the smartphone makers. So when we're talking about Apple watch or, you know, your, your, your iPhone that's in your pocket, we, they already know your web browsing history and where you are. If you have more apps that you download from the app store that gives you gives now information about how you're sleeping or your heart rate or, uh, you know, blood pressure and things like this, more and more we're feeding these devices information that could be useful. And you're starting to see kind of a decoupling. A lot of these companies This is why Apple keeps talking about healthcare as its final frontier that wants to approach this. If you've already got the data, the next step is how do you get the algorithms? How do you get the AI that's going to fine tune that to say, hey, you've got a risk right now and we're going to tell you, you need to go to the hospital. Uh, you want to make sure that you're right, that you're not sending people unnecessarily and we're causing a lot of confusion out there. But if you can crack that, that's the trick to being proactive to healthcare. This is why you see device makers, not just wearable device makers, but smartphone device makers so interested in healthcare. So you've actually seen Apple Watches tell people, your heart rate is doing this, go to the doctor. Simon, is this a slow disruption? Because Apple knows where it wants to go, but it's not gonna get there for like five, six, seven years maybe? Again, the pace of innovation depends on how embedded it gets with the hospital, right? We are already starting to see companies that are that are working with, with hospital providers, with health providers with health networks. You know, we won't talk about those too much here on this show today, but you're already seeing hospitals saying, yes, I am embracing that you know how to use AI on this data that you're collecting out there. That's gonna be the question, Dan. It could, could be a couple of years. It could be five years, seven, it could be two years. We're already starting to see it. I know that as a, as a patient of any hospital that I go to, I want the hospital that's gonna be right and is gonna be proactive. And we're starting to see some of that out there already. Yeah, the hospital that's wrong most of the time is not a successful hospital. <laughs> We've got a couple of more comments. We were going to do more on this show, but I think we're just going to keep it to healthcare. We'll get to all the other things we wanted to share later this week. But Simon, you wanted to take Luciano's comment. Yeah, I like this one. I mean, Luciano writes, is disruptive a word that's thrown into market a company or a stock? Seems like this nowadays. And that's so true, right? I mean, so many people are just identifying being disruptive with doing something differently, 
right? I, I remember hearing Chipotle was completely disrupting <laughs> the restaurant chains, you know, when it was offering a new menu that wasn't out there. Uh, disruptive is, is, is a very specific thing. You need to look at what management is doing, whether or not that the marketing folk of a company are promoting a company as being disruptive is very different than if they're actually going after an underserved segment of the industry. And if they're making progress in this very difficult to topple uh, environment that's been owned by the incumbents with their higher margin products for years, I mean, that's what's disruptive out there. I would agree with you, Luciano. It's being used way too often in the media these days. Yeah, replacing food with like a nutrition pill is different than making a burrito more efficiently. Right. Dana, did you want to weigh in here? Um, you know, it's, so, you know, I, I work a lot with startups as well. And, you know, it seems like every startup in their pitch is talking about how, you know, they're being disruptive. So I, I totally agree that that word is, you know, um, often overused. We'll let Bill Plock have the last comment here before going to Simon and Dana for a wrap up. Simon, if you want to read that comment, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Bill. My new Tempur-Pedic bed sends me alerts about my sleep patterns. I'm not sure about its accuracy, though. Uh, your wife says you snore more than it says. <laughs> Funny comment on that one, too, Bill. But um, yeah, that's great. You're starting to see the apps pick up out there, huh? It's important to remember that these are not diagnostic tools. These are tools we might use to identify when we need diagnoses or, or proper tools. Uh, you know, a, a sleep study in a hospital cannot be replaced by your Fitbit or your bed. And that is important to note. Uh, Simon, let's just wrap up a little bit. Some overall thoughts on healthcare and disruption. Then we'll let Dana do that. And then, of course, we will hit our finisher. Yeah, again, so I mean, when I look at checkboxes, back to full circle, your question of which industry is in need of disruption out there, I, I see that healthcare, we're spending $4 trillion a year on it right now. The majority of the system is reimbursing based on procedures uh, and volume rather than on patient outcomes. And you've got a large percentage of the population that is either underserved or has to figure out health insurance on their own if they're not employed full time. This is in concert with the gig economy where a lot of people are taking on side hustles and doing uh, part-time work or consulting as well. And so we've got a huge challenge. It's, it's not gonna happen overnight. We're not gonna fix healthcare. And, uh, and, and this is just gonna snap our fingers and fix it. But I think that there are some pockets of very disruptive innovation that are taking place, whether that's in the technologies themselves. And we talk about gene editing, gene editing whether you talk about uh, disruption in the payments space of how we're reimbursing things like that, or whether we're kind of just encouraging people to be more consumer involved uh, and taking charge of their own lifestyles and their own health too. I mean, all of those are very disruptive from where we stand today. It's a fascinating industry. It's one that has a lot of my attention. I know it's one of Dana's favorite topics as well. Dana, solve healthcare. You have 45 seconds. <laughs> um, I'm working on it. I'm working on it, Dan. This is one of the reasons why I went to business school. It's just, you know, I, I, I had told my doctor, I'm like, I want, I want to change the healthcare industry, and 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 I'm trying, right? And and I'm not alone. Um, thank goodness, um, is it's not something that just one person can do, or you know, teams of people. But you know, we are um, making progress. Um, there is innovation, um, you know, both at the government level um, and you know in. Um, you know, different hospital systems. Um, we're seeing that, you know, in value-based care. I've written some stuff about that as well. Um, I don't, I'm not, I, Simon can tell us whether or not it's publicly available. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, we are, we are making progress, but then, you know, 
like, you know, we, we have, as consumers of healthcare, we have the opportunity to, to disrupt it, you know, just by, you know, the things that we do, you know, considering our health, um, you know, our, the health of our communities, um, you know, taking care of our bodies, listening to our bodies, um, moving our bodies, feeding them well, letting them rest when they need to, um, you know, all those things, um, you know, and, and being proactive, you know, like, doing all those screenings and all those, you know, unpleasant things, um, you know, just, you know, those are things that, that we need to do in order to kind of be prepared. Getting information out there is really important. I've made a lot of meaningful changes because of Max and Dana. Like that's not <laughs> how it should be happening. It should be <laughs> delivered from somewhere else. Uh, this is totally unrelated. We appreciate the healthcare discussion, uh, but the finisher is, a, is usually something we post on Twitter before we figured out our topic. So I apologize that this is completely unrelated to the topic at hand. Sam Bailey, if you wanna pull up our finisher, and Simon, I'll let you read it. Sure, yep. Oop, and it does, we, maybe we're having some technical glitches there. That seems, uh, pretty much right for the day, so not a big deal. We could skip this one. Simon, why don't you read Daniel Delgado's comment to close out and then tell people how they can get in contact with us. Oh, bear with me one second here, Dan. I can pull up our finisher, even though we can't show the screenshot of it itself. If you do bear with me one second, it says that uh, you asked which entertainment company has the biggest upside, uh, Netflix, Walt Disney, WWE, or Comcast. And the overall winner, Dan, on that one was Walt Disney. They got 70% of the vote. I think that it's probably you would be the best one to speak about that uh, vote result. Though, right? Yeah, it's overwhelmingly Walt Disney. A lot of people wrote in Viacom CBS. And here's the reality. This is an IP game. And Viacom CBS has done a really good job with monetizing, but they don't own any good IP. Their best IP is like Star Trek and SpongeBob. It's not great. Disney is number one. Comcast is like number 17. That's how different this industry is. So yeah, overall... Disney has dozens, if not hundreds of exploitable hits. And going forward, they are going to be the absolute winner. Simon, how can people get in touch with us? Yeah, great. So, so thanks again for everybody attending this show. This one was a lot of fun for me. I, I know that uh, this is a topic that I get pretty excited talking about, Dana as well, uh, since she spent three decades in a career in healthcare. I, I think that if anybody really wants to invest in healthcare, I really, again, uh, encourage you to check out Dana's report. It's right on 7investing.com. You see it right at the top of our homepage. It's Can Technology Fix American Healthcare? We're going to feature that only for a few more days. So if you're not already a 7investing subscriber, go check that out. Dana not only has a great report, but has seven things we need to diagnose to fix in healthcare, and then even three stock ideas at the bottom of it too. Uh, so really, A plus on Dana's report. Go, go check that out at 7investing.com if you have not done so already. And if you want to see our, our recommendations from the team, uh, not only the content we're providing, like those reports, but also the actual stock recommendations, each advisor on this team comes up with our very best idea every single month. We lock those in and they then we release them on the very first of each new month. And so we got a couple of weeks until the first of, uh, of September kicks in here, Dan, but I'm pretty excited about the team's ideas. And uh, you can check those out at 7investing.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, it is info at seveninvesting.com. That is questions about the service, questions about your membership, uh, you know, anything you want to know from us. But of course, don't ask us to research like, you know, some penny stock we've never heard of. That, that's a little bit over the line. But 
you know, questions if you're a member, we'll, we'll funnel, them, funnel them into the member call if they're on past recommendations. And if you want to interact with us publicly, we are at 7investing. That is the number 7investing on Twitter. And we are always fun to follow. Uh, apologies for any internet issues. I know Dana had some. I know I had a couple. I don't know why the internet doesn't work better. Uh, so for Sam Bailey, for Simon Erickson, for Dana Obramovitz, I am Dan Klein. I'm in Las Vegas. I'll be back on Wednesday. We appreciate so many of you watching. Thank you. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.